0: You are seeing this through the lens of a rational political scientist slash economist. The Egyptians are seeing this through a different lens. We are too big to
1: fail. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. The Ukraine war has precipitated an economic crisis in Egypt. Commodity prices rose and foreign investors who had been willing to underwrite Egyptian debt have fled. Meanwhile, Gulf governments are increasingly unwilling to bail out the Egyptian government. Instead, they're exploring ways to invest in Egyptian businesses, but they're only willing to do so on better terms than they've been able to obtain so far. After nine months of negotiations, the International Monetary Fund extended a $3 billion loan to Egypt last winter, but it's only paid out a single installment after being unable to certify Egyptian compliance with the agreed terms. This week on Babel, I speak with veteran economist Khalid Ikram to break down Egypt's debt crisis. We talk about the Egyptian military's heavy-handed role in the economy, what Egyptian policymakers could do to alleviate the current crisis, and what's stopping them. Then I continue the conversation with Will Todman and Leah Hickert, discussing the parallels and differences between Egypt's economic situation and how other governments in the region handle their economies. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Khalid Ikram is an economist and consultant for over a dozen major international development organizations following a 25-year career in the World Bank. He's been involved with the Egyptian economy for more than 45 years. He's the editor of a recent book, The Egyptian Economy in the 21st Century, and what I dare call The Magisterial, The Political Economy of Reforms in Egypt, Issues and Policymaking since 1952, both published by the American University in Cairo Press. Khaled Ikram, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much. As somebody who's followed Egypt's economy for 45 years, how serious? Are Egypt's problems now, in historical perspective? Well, when you talk to Egyptians about problems,
0: you get a very different answer than you would get from many other countries. I mean, when you talk about my country, Pakistan, Sooner or later, the question pops up, will this country survive? You never get this kind of flavor in Egypt. we survived for 7,000 years, of course we'll survive. We may not survive in as prosperous a manner as we would like, but there's no question of Egypt disappearing. So there is an underlying sense of confidence in them. They may curse their rulers, they may curse their policy makers, they may do all kinds of criticisms, but they're never afraid that the place is going to disappear.
1: Your introduction to Egypt, in many ways, was the 1977 bread riots. Egypt, of course, had a revolution in 2011. Do you see the situation now approaching the situations before those challenges, or is it somewhat less serious?
0: Well, in 1977, I actually happened to be in Egypt when the riots erupted. And the World Bank asked me to bring my mission back. And I said, well, I'll call the mission members and see if they want to go back. I'm not coming back. You were going to stay Um, in Egypt. I was going to stay in Egypt. And I said, frankly, you guys in Washington seem to think that policy advice is scribbling things on a bits of paper and handing them over to various ministers over lunch or something. I want the mission to actually see what happens when policy goes wrong. The place goes up in flames, the police go out shooting, people go out throwing rocks. That is what cockeyed and cocked-up policy making results in. And so I would like them to have a more humble approach to the advice they give. But they always have to temper economic purity with the politically doable. Otherwise, I mean, you just get the fire and the burnt-up buses, and you don't get any movement forward.
1: One of the things I found very interesting in your book is you've had a front row seat to many of the international financial communities' demands on Egypt. And you say that Egypt has a history of responding to IMF demands to depreciate the pound with temporizing. Where do you think we're going? Do you think now we have a constellation where Egypt is going to have to generally comply with what the IMF wants? Or is Egypt going to find another way out?
0: Well, I think the situation is pretty serious, so they will comply, but not entirely. I mean, let's uh, take one or two examples. Many countries can find backdoor ways of adjusting the effective exchange rate through these things. I mean, for example, the Koreans used to do it, keep the formal exchange rate devalued, but they couldn't go beyond a point because the Americans would start howling. And so they would find other ways. I mean, shipping costs for exporters would be reduced. Electricity charges for exporters would be reduced. Uh, Exporters could get bank loans at a rate of 4% per annum when the market rate was 30% an annum. And so the nominal exchange rate could remain what it was, but the effective exchange rate could be mucked about in in these ways. And I'm sure the Egyptians and the Koreans and so on could find many other ways of uh, doing this. The other thing that the IMF, the World Bank, and so on, quite reasonably... Want is a reduction of the army's presence, of the military presence in the economy. And basically, this means that there shouldn't be so many state-owned enterprises. And if there are, they have to compete on a level playing field with the private sector, and so on, and so on, and so on. And to be blunt, I think that the IMF and the World Bank and so on are too enamored of the economics textbooks to understand the political economy behind why the Egyptians, the Pakistanis, the Vietnamese, you know, everybody else is reluctant to close or run down the state-owned enterprises. And to my mind, the reason is this. wherever you've got the military with a large presence and effectively able to control things from behind the scenes, the guy who's come to power via a military coup has to keep looking over his shoulder to see whether he's going to be replaced in a similar manner. So, two things happen. First, you can't let another general become too popular with the troops, because the general isn't the one carrying the guns, so you can't have them building up loyalty to a particular general. So, the guy in power does two things. One is that he rotates the commands around. I mean, you know, you'd have General X in charge of the Eastern Command, and then two years later, he's moved to the Western Command, and two years later, he's moved to some administrative job, and three years later, he becomes an ambassador. Keep him moving around. You defang him. But, you know, there are only so many ambassadorships. So you put them in SOEs. You make them presidents of that and chairmen of that and board members of that. There they are harmless. You put them out of... Your harm's way. So, I think that what will happen is that as far as the SOEs, the state owned enterprises, are concerned, you'll see quite a lot of ingenuity at play to comply in formal terms with what the World Bank and the IMF want. But the
1: reality may be substantially different. In both of the books I mentioned, you argue that small firms in Egypt don't grow. In your edited volume, there's a chapter by Atias and Dewan that talks about the problems that face medium-sized enterprises, which are sort of squished between government enterprises on the top and small folks who evade scrutiny and regulation on the bottom. Your book cites a World Bank study that calculated that the possibility of a firm with six to 10 workers would have more than 20 workers in four years was 3.3%. You talk a lot about the lack of domestic investment in Egypt, but one of the things I keep hearing from friends in the business community in Egypt is you can't have the government as a partner because they'll squash you. You can't have the government as a competitor because they'll squash you. And the phenomenon you've described with the state with its fingers in a lot of places is it keeps the small and medium enterprises, which could be drivers of employment growth, from doing exactly what you want them to do.
0: You're quite right. The government starts off with having a number of aims, and frequently those aims are in conflict. I mean, employment is a government aim, but giving preference to state-owned enterprises to enable them to do all the other things that the government wants done is also an aim. And that aim seems to trump
1: the efficiency and growth aim. And you've written that, Consistently, regime survival has trumped economic vulnerability among policymakers. Can you just help us understand what you mean there? Yes.
0: Let me take Korea as an example because it was in the 1970s a good comparative for Egypt. And when they started their independence in 1945, they had the president followed this usual import substitution strategy delivered by crony capitalism. And then in 1961, he got overthrown by General Park Chung-hee, who for the first year followed the same policy. But then he came under the influence of a group of advisers, who made the following argument to him. They said, Mr. President, your primary responsibility is for the security of Korea. And we are now beginning to feel increasingly insecure. The security has been provided by the Americans, but that protective umbrella is beginning to fray because they are pulling troops out from here and shoving them into Vietnam. We are threatened by North Korea. And remember, the North Korean economy was doing better than South Korea's at that point. So they said, we have this threat and security requires technology, which we don't have. So we've got to get it from abroad, which, requires foreign exchange, which we don't have. So the only way we can get it is through exports. So if you want Korea to be secure, you have to export. It is export or disappear. Now, what happened over here was that the advisors were smart enough to align the president and the army's main priority, which was regime survival, with economic survival and economic prosperity. This has not happened in Egypt. Nobody has said to the Egyptian army that wars these days are fought by the long purse rather than the long sword. So if you guys want a decent army and a decent air force and whatever, you have to start with building up your economy. Otherwise, you can't fight.
1: Well, and, and you've said, and I think it's, it's certainly accurate as far as I know, that for the Egyptian government, external financing has been consistently preferable. To policy reform, I suppose the question is, is the external financing option still available? Certainly there was the hot money that came in that helped support a number of CC's mega projects, but it also seems to me that there's a unique alignment between the Gulf Cooperation Council states and the IMF on the need for policy reform, a sense that CC has burned them Time and time again, they're not going to be fooled again, and they're going to force Egypt to change. You certainly don't see the United States with the same focus on Egypt that it had in the past. The European Union is preoccupied with other things. The Chinese are quite judicious where they put money, certainly more money in Egypt, but they're not interested in financing Egypt and walked away from the new administrative capital for some time. So, understanding that, as you say, there's always a sense that external financing is preferable to internal reform. Is external financing on the table at this juncture? That question has more politics than I understand.
0: Because previously, when Egypt recognized Israel, there were a lot of Middle East countries, Arab countries, which said, this is horrible. And we'll cut our financing, and we'll do this, that, and the other.
1: And the United States stepped in with billions of dollars that yes. represented a significant part of the Egyptian economy.
0: But at that time, the Saudis had deposited $3 billion in the Egypt Central Bank, and the other Gulf countries had deposited another $2 billion. And Saudi Arabia was also one of the countries I was responsible for. And when I was there, I asked the governor of the Central Bank, I said, "That are you going to withdraw your deposits? And he said, of course not. There's things that we have to do for optics, and there are things that we have to do for survival. While we want to give everybody a signal that we don't like what Egypt has done vis-a-vis Israel, we can't afford to have Israel toppled because we don't know what kind of government will come. If it's a totally Republican government, they might take a nasty view of all the kingdoms in the Middle East. So you see, again, I don't know the politics of uh, goes on. And again, where the United States is concerned, again, I'm puzzled when I read that we've given billions of dollars... Why don't they listen to us? And it would be a fair question, but if properly posed. We've given billions of dollars, and the Egyptian response is, but we gave at the office. I mean, the deal was, you give us billions of dollars, we recognize Israel, and we don't make a nuisance of ourselves to impede the West's access to Middle East oil. We've delivered on that. Now, if you want us to wear yellow shirts and you know, drink coffee instead of tea, and I mean, cough up more money. When... American aid started in a big way after the Cap David agreement. The deal was that the Egyptians got $1.3 billion as a grant for military aid and $815 million as a grant for economic aid. That's $2.15 billion. And at that point, the Egyptian GDP was $23 billion. So this was 9% of GDP. 9% of GDP buys you a comfortable sofa at any table. Over the years, economic aid to Egypt began to be cut by $40 million a year. And today, it is about $250 million. Military aid remains at $1.3 billion. So total U.S. aid to Egypt today is $1.5 billion. In the meantime, Egypt's GDP has grown. And the economic aid from the U.S. is now half of 1% of GDP. So while 9% of GDP would buy you a comfortable sofa at the table, half of 1% doesn't buy you a three-legged stool. So they look for other sources of aid. I mean, you know, put the screws on the Arabs, or the other Gulf Arabs, I mean, for a while, go to Saudi Arabia for a while, do all these kinds of things. And I think you're right that these countries are becoming reluctant to be as liberal as they were. And
1: it's they're just- moving from supporting the central bank to supporting individual projects. And there's been a lot of reluctance to invest in Egypt in companies where they're just not happy with the financials. I mean, my experience with the Saudi Public Investment Fund is they pride themselves on being shrewd investment bankers. And they say, we just don't see the upside in the businesses and the shares we're given under the terms available. I totally agree with your assessment of that, and I totally
0: agree with the assessment of the Saudi bankers, because, I mean, a lot of these projects, I, mean, I don't know how many of them would ever pay you back, or how many of them are even furthering Egypt's goals. I mean, take this new capital. It's a huge capital-intensive kind of
1: place. Something on the order of 50 to $60 billion in initial phase. And
0: what are the employment that is generated? What are the exports is generated? Zilch. It's not furthering Egypt's aim, which, above all, is employment. You know, you can think of many aims that a government should have, and I think one should whittle them down as far as possible because you can't fight this battle on so many fronts. But So that's why in the book, I basically chose two. One was a better life for its citizens, and that has a number of implications. And second was that reduce the ability of external agents whether they are governments or whether they are international organizations like the World Bank and the IMF and the you know Islamic Development Bank and whatever, to exert pressure on Egypt to make it accept terms that it considers onerous.
1: Although you've argued that really the fundamental goal of the regime is regime preservation at the expense of everything. Yes. And these two are in line with regime preservation. I mean, if you've got people
0: have got full stomachs, they're not going to be concerned with overthrowing the government. If outsiders are not able to say, you guys better devalue, you guys better wind up your public enterprises, or whatever, that also helps the regime. So the trouble is that since these two are good for the regime survival, why does the government not do it? And the conclusion I come to, that again, it's a political economy issue. Understanding that the Egyptian economy needs these reforms is not rocket science. But as Sinclair Lewis said, it's very difficult to make a man understand something if his income depends upon his not understanding it. And what happens is that the man in question is the policymaker, and he does not want to take a gamble on economic reform. You, at the present moment, you've got a certain distribution of winners and losers in the economy. The winners are winners because they have access to power through a variety of means. They are either in the armed forces or they are associated with religious forces or they are powerful commercial forces. But these guys like the status quo. Why would they take a gamble on changing it? Because if they change it, they may end up by being losers. They are not confident of what the status quo will bring. I've argued this several times with Egyptian policymakers, who, I must say, have been very open in their discussions with me. And I have said, look, you guys have got to say that the present winners will not be losers. It's just that the gap between how much they win versus how much the losers lose will become smaller. It's always a yes, but, or the response I get. I mean, that, yeah, we agree with what needs to be done. Yes, we agree that, I mean, income distribution and these things have to be looked at. And yes, what you say makes sense. We should be content with that kind of difference. But we don't know who will do it, and we don't know at what point it will stop.
1: But ultimately, it seems to me that Egypt has been in a position where for the last 75 years, it's instrumentalized its foreign policy to support its domestic environment. And it seems to me at the same time that its ability to continue to do so is running out of steam. The great powers have changed their view. The great powers have changed their view of the Middle East. The Gulf states have felt burned that they tried to help Egypt for 10 years, and the Egyptians just pocketed the money and didn't make the necessary reforms. The IMF now has Egypt as the number two debtor state in the world and feels it can't go further. It does feel to me like the situation you're describing depends on some external donor to make the Egyptians whole. And the Egyptians have seemed to have run out of external donors because the external donors are tired of the direction in which Egypt's gone. Am I missing something? You are seeing this through
0: the lens of a rational political scientist slash economist. The Egyptians are seeing this through a different lens. We are too big to fail.
1: Does everybody
0: agree with that, do you think? Not a lot of Egyptian laymen don't agree with that. The opposition doesn't agree with that. But the opposition doesn't carry the guns. The guys making the policies are the ones who believe that. And you see, the thing is, In the present history of Egypt, let's just say 1975, nobody has ever said that if you don't do this, the consequence will be X, Y, Z. And gone even as far as X. I mean, why would the Egyptian DNA change? I mean, when it's never been subjected to anything else. In 1977, just when the riots were taking place, the U.S. ambassador in Egypt was Herman Eilts. And he invited me to a one-on-one dinner just at the height of these riots. And over dinner, he said to me, what is needed is the World Bank holds the Egyptians' feet to the fire, that if you don't reform, you have to do X, you have to do Y. So I said, Herman, let me say this. The World Bank is dispersing some, between 50 and $60 million a year to Egypt, and they are nowhere near the $600 million that you are dispersing today. Why would an Egyptian policymaker turn his economy upside down for the sake of $50 million? Can you give me any assurance that if the bank tries to hold Egypt's feet to the fire, Sadat will get even one penny less of U.S. aid? That was 1977. And I can quote verbatim what Herman's reply was after a pause. He said, quote, we believe that President Sadat is a force for moderation in the Middle East. And so long as he continues to be a force for moderation, he deserves to be supported, End quote. So I said Herman, translated into plain Anglo-Saxon language, it means he gets the 600 million bucks no matter what.
1: But I guess the difference is that was in an age when the U.S., in a Cold War context, Was preoccupied with the Arab Israeli issue when Egypt and Israel did not have independently excellent relations as they do now. I don't disagree at all with what you're saying. But what I'm saying is that the lens
0: through which they were seeing it is still a lens where uh, people made noises, but ultimately they got one way or another the money. It's only if they get a jolt that they realize things are serious.
1: And your judgment is, in fact, in reality, Nobody will be willing to pull the trigger. They'll pull the trigger with a lot of caveats and it'll be jewels and dribbles. Halid Ikram, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much.
2: During the interview, Halid said something really interesting because he was talking about how the Egyptian government has to borrow money to subsidize the public, in return for public support. Arguably, the United States Congress does the same thing. So how are these situations different, and how are they similar?
1: I think they're overwhelmingly similar, that elected officials try to use their position to stay in power. The difference is that the elections in Egypt aren't really meaningful in the electoral way, but we saw with President Mubarak, when the public gets fed up, the public rises up. But the advantage of electoral systems is you have all the warning signs. You don't have these eruptions. The disadvantage of authoritarian systems is it's often hard to get a sense for where public sentiment is. But I think what we've seen throughout the last 75 years in Egypt, you've seen leaders who sometimes want to mobilize the public, sometimes want to anesthetize the public, sometimes want to bribe the public, and sometimes want to suppress the public or repress the public. Those are the tools. You don't really have the repression tool in the United States. It's been very hard to mobilize people in many cases, anesthetizing people. I don't know how well that works, but in many ways, what politicians are trying to do anywhere is stay in power. I think there are more signs of success and failure in a democratic system. It's meant to give off signals. And in an authoritarian system, as we see in Egypt, it can be a harder road to walk. In some ways, you have more tools, but you have fewer ways to measure the efficacy of your tools. That's mm-hmm.
2: interesting. Why do you think Egypt is choosing to use the incentivize tool if the general population is still frustrated with them and they don't have economic resources internally? to fund their own incentive campaign. Well,
1: they're using some incentives and you know, 60% of the Egyptian public currently gets subsidized bread. So there are a lot of people. CC has been trying to pull some of that back. Sisi had certainly been trying to rally people. There was almost a cult of personality in Egypt after 2013 when CC came to power. A lot of that has tarnished a little bit. There's certainly more repression in Egypt than there's been. So it's it feels almost like in Egypt, they're running out of all the tools. They're no longer inspiring people so much. They're no longer able to buy people off as much. I think there's some anesthetizing of the people going on. Or A lot of people say, well, I don't know what to do. We had a revolution. We're worse off than we were before. The repression tool, you can use some, but there are probably limits. And it probably also limits your economic growth and, and has other consequences. But I think, you know, the instinct of I can reward the public and the public will reward me is deeply baked into democratic and authoritarian systems.
2: That idea is actually really closely linked to something that struck me during the interview, because Khalid kept saying that a regime's survival depends on its ability to have economic reform, But at the same time, economic reform can be really risky. It can be really destabilizing. So what kinds of dangers have Middle Eastern governments faced when they engaged in economic reform? And how have they tried to mitigate against those dangers?
3: So the most obvious danger is that the public will rise up against it and will protest it and will resist. And so in that way, you know, governments have a choice about prioritizing and sequencing the reforms that they make. There are some reforms that are really symbolic and that are very likely to strike a core to aggravate the public. John, you just mentioned bread subsidies in Egypt. I mean, Egypt's bread riots are famous. The subsidies on bread is clearly something that a lot of Egyptians are very acutely aware of. And there are some other sort of more symbolic reforms that other governments have proposed in the region that have really caused the ire of the people. I think of Lebanon in 2019 with the WhatsApp tax. This was a proposed you know, tax on WhatsApp, which of course wasn't the only spark of the protests, but was the maybe the straw that broke the, the camel's back when it came to really motivating people out onto the street. So there might be other forms of economic reform that have less of a symbolic value and might be slightly easier for a government to implement. But then they also have to think about the timing of when they do these reforms. So in good days, when otherwise the economy is doing well, governments often have a lot more bandwidth to be able to introduce reforms. If you look at some Gulf countries in particular, they have actually lifted subsidies on basic services like electricity tariffs and things like that in quite a significant way. But because overall the economic picture is looking much better, they're able to do that. Now, you could also say on the timing perspective, at the other end of the scale, when there is total economic collapse, in some ways that is easier to implement reforms because then you can sort of build up again. And we're seeing that in Lebanon. It's the total collapse of the electricity sector has enabled the government to lift electricity tariffs again for the first time in decades. It's the really tricky point for governments is when the situation is worsening, when people are feeling that their economic situation is getting worse, That's when you really need to be doing these reforms, but it's when you're most likely to get the most resistance to them.
1: I think you can do a lot of things with everything Bill said. Sometimes governments announce reforms well in advance. They sort of socialize them so nobody's surprised. You can have reforms that have very selective impacts. So, you know, we've seen in Egypt and and one of our interns, Pascal Buchter was working on the increased costs of having dogs in Cairo. Dogs are seen as a, a luxury. And so the cost of having foreign breeds goes up, the cost of license goes up, all those things. So you can sort of look like you're going after fat cats. And that gives you a little bit of of space on the reform because it looks like you're really trying to target the people who can most afford it most and everybody doesn't feel affected.
2: Across the region, there's a lot of instances in which you see these different elite groups having their hand in state economies whether you're thinking of the political and clerical leaders of Iran, or if you're looking at the Gulf monarchies, how does the Egyptian military's role in the economy make it different from these other elite-led systems in the region?
1: I think one way it's different is the Egyptian military is not only deeply engaged in the economy, but it's deeply engaged with foreign governments. And so that gives it, I think, some insulation from international pressure. I think there's a way in which the psyche military training is really a profoundly top-down training method, drop-down socialization. And that makes the Egyptian elite now especially disinterested in grassroots ideas just because of the, the kind of backgrounds that people making decisions have. I'm really struck when I meet with senior Egyptian officials that there is no cadre of civilian business people who really seem to have the inside track. It really all does seem to be people with a military background and a military background has a certain attitude toward risk, a certain attitude toward innovation, a certain attitude toward delegating responsibility and authority. And I think there's a way that that because you do have the military at such a preponderantly important role in Egypt, that it does affect the, the possibilities for economic change, because of a real sense that I've had talking to very, very senior Egyptians, that the most senior levels of the government think that all the patriots wear green uniforms and everybody else is just somebody out for him or herself. And it's almost like a second-class form of patriotism and not to be trusted. And I think you see that manifested in some of the economic decisions that the government makes.
3: Yeah, I do wonder about that kind of legitimacy point when you compare the military to other elites. When we look at some other countries, we often think of these business tycoons and extremely wealthy members of the private sector. And they're really famous and they're well-known often in the countries. But I'm not sure that they have any real legitimacy to draw from in terms of kind of winning the hearts and minds of average people. Whereas the military is an institution that clearly a lot of Egyptians really value. And there's almost, you know, this veneer of legitimacy that comes from being a state institution.
1: One of the interesting things, and to pick up on what you said, there's a way in which business tycoons don't assert an equality of their interests and the national interests. The Egyptian military does. And it's almost like people who blend religion and politics, that it becomes a form of blasphemy to criticize them. It becomes a form of treason to criticize military's economic activities because the military is advancing the national interest by definition. And that gives them a certain degree of impunity that I think is maybe similar to people who lead religious parties, except there's a single institution, almost like the fingers of the clerical establishment in Iran, which with the IRGC and the the parastatal foundations and everything else, perhaps controls about a third of the Iranian economy. I think the number is likely smaller in Egypt, but there's still that sense of opacity and impunity, and also a sense of, their asserted legitimacy, which makes it very hard to move them aside.
2: Yeah, it seems that the composition of the Egyptian business class and just the lack of privatization across the country is becoming a tension point for Egypt's relationship with the outside world. You can look at the United States. Egypt is one of the United States' largest recipients of aid in the region. But at the same time, you could argue that there's growing fatigue towards Egypt. Looking forward, how will Egypt's invitation to join BRICS really change the U.S. calculus towards the country?
3: I followed some Egyptian media talking about this, actually, and there was a lot of excitement of this is a huge opportunity for Egypt. This is really going to open up new economic opportunities, trading partnerships with other BRICS countries. Kind of finally, Egypt can be free of the demands of the U.S. and the West maybe there's some degree to that you know i think in some ways this does probably dull the ability of you know western led institutions like the imf to demand some of these reforms when egypt maybe does have other partners that it can turn to but ultimately i don't see this really changing the underlying problems you know egypt's macroeconomic issues are not going to be solved by it joining brics i think egypt already was not really following what Western states were prescribing in terms of you know, all the economic reforms that we've been talking about. So I don't know that this fundamentally changes anything.
1: I agree. It seems to me that the Middle Eastern countries that joined BRICS were, with the exception of Algeria, the same Middle Eastern countries that had comprehensive strategic partnerships with China. I think that there's a sense that everybody's looking for more flexibility and, and ways to escape American hegemony, I don't think a lot of that redounds directly to Egypt. They certainly want a relationship with China. But Egypt's future is about having a much more diverse set of relationships, what that looks like, how it benefits Egypt, how much Egypt is able to meet its ambitions, how much Egypt is able to deal with its profound problems. I think is in question, but you're not at the point where the United States is the government's overwhelming partner. And I think neither Egyptians nor Americans have completely wrapped their head around what else does that mean? There's a problem for the United States figuring out what this relationship is going to be if Egypt doesn't isn't principally oriented toward the United States. But even more profoundly for Egypt, which takes its central role for granted. Egypt thinks of itself as a pivotal state, as a right of its geographic location, its population, but also because what they see as their historic leadership of the Arab world. I think that has to be interrogated too and how that works itself out and how Egypt thinks about itself in an African context, the Middle Eastern context, the Mediterranean context, a global context. I think is different. 20 years ago, a lot of people loved to talk about Egypt as a pivotal state. I don't think people do talk about Egypt as a pivotal state. And in some ways, we may be back to the point we were in 1952, when Gamal del Nasser figured out a way to make Egypt pivotal to the world. Can Egypt's leadership now or in the future think of a way to reconceptualize Egypt So it's pivotal to the world, or what does it mean for Egypt when it transitions after 75 years from being perceived as pivotal to being more marginal? Egypt's used its foreign policy to support its domestic economic policy for three quarters of a century. Can they do it for another three quarters of a century? And if not, what do they do? To me, that's the big strategic question in Egypt. And I've spoken to a lot of Egyptians, and I don't think Egyptians have wrapped their head around that yet.
2: It will be interesting to see how Egypt's status, its relationships, and its economy develop into the future. Thank you for joining me, John. Thanks, Will.
1: Thanks, Leo. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.